Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Welcome to the Heritage Foundation Center for Energy, Climate, and Environment's PowerCast. The PowerCast is a new bi-weekly audio program for those interested in the top conservative insight and analysis of energy, climate, and environmental issues. My name is Darren Bax, and I'm Senior Research Fellow, Environmental Policy and Regulation in the Heritage Foundation Center for Energy, Climate, and Environment. U.S. policymakers don't need a crystal ball to get a good idea of the impact of Green New Deal-type policies and the impact of a war on energy that is anti-conventional fuel. We're seeing these impacts right now here in the U.S. But lessons can also be learned from the experiences of the EU and U.K., who are further down this misguided path of attacking reliable and abundant energy, on the name of climate change and other alleged environmental objectives. There are many cautionary tales, and U.S. policymakers shouldn't ignore them. In this edition of the PowerCast, we're going to discuss what the EU and UK have done when it comes to energy policy, what has been the result of these policies, and what lessons the U.S. should take from the cautionary tales from the EU and UK. Today, I'm joined by two leading energy experts to discuss these issues. Dr. John Constable is Energy Director at the Global Warming Policy Foundation in the UK and is author of their excellent new report, Europe's Green Experiment, A Costly Failure in Unilateral Climate Policy. And we're also joined by Jack Spencer, who's Senior Research Fellow, Energy and Environmental Policy at the Heritage Foundation. So let's get right to it. First, John and Jack, thank you for being here. That's a great pleasure. Thanks for having me, Darren. Sure. And uh, so, John, let me start with you. Let's go back a bit in time and look at energy policy in the EU pre-pandemic. And, of course, the U.K. was a member of the EU for many years, too. John, I'd like to start um, with several questions regarding this history. And first, could you explain how the EU's energy policy and the strategy informing it have changed since 1990? Yes, it's it's a curious story because initially in the 90s, most of the European states were on a fundamentally sensible, engineerable, thermodynamically sound track. They were moving into gas and then heading toward nuclear. But simultaneously, they began to adopt climate policies that demanded renewable energy. There was no logical connection between reducing emissions and adopting renewable energy, but that was insisted upon. And so the viable policy, gas to nuclear, was progressively marginalised, and this is very obvious in the UK, but also obvious in other European states. So there's an early change uh, we, we had, a, indeed, you could say, we had a viable climate policy before there were any climate policies. All the European states were spontaneously decarbonizing as they improved the efficiency of their conversion devices and adopted natural gas for many processes. So the, the, the big event is the, the whole-scale adoption of renewable energy as the principal means to reduce emissions, and that really takes place in the early 2000s. So, you know, before we get into today and the European Green Deal... John, what are, what are some of the key policies the EU pursued um, after 1990 or starting then? I mean, you talked about renewable energy, so it'd be interesting to know what kind of the, some of the policies they adopted related to renewable energy. And also, could you explain the EU emissions trading system? 
Yes, the, the, the EU ETS, the European Union Emissions Trading System, um, might have worked had it been the sole policy instrument. It was a way of putting a price onto carbon and sending a signal to the market uh, to uh, reduce its emission. But it wasn't the sole policy instrument, and one suspects that it was never really intended to be. It was never given a proper chance. And those people who were involved in designing it will be quite bitter about this. They will say that, you know, their time was wasted and that it was viable policy which was compromised by cross-cutting prices for carbon implied by the renewable energy targets. And this is typical of European policy generally, and particularly the UK policy, that rather than having a single price signal in relation to carbon, you have dozens of them, because you have dozens of different carbon policies, all of them with implicit uh, costs for reducing emissions. Now, that's just just incompetent policy design, uh, and really a sort of thing which the US should definitely avoid. If you remain committed to reducing emissions, you go for a single price. So the EUTS uh, came into effect before the renewables targets really became instantiated. But the intention to use renewables was always there. So the ETS uh, is a trading system. It's a cap-and-trade system. It uh, is very poorly understood uh, by those uh, who, who've looked at it. Um, it guarantees the saving, but it also caps it. Uh, that's a feature of the design, meaning that any other policies, renewable energy targets, for example, add additional cost, but don't actually add any additional emissions saving. Uh, this, again, is, is very poorly understood. So it simply compels the market to choose a more expensive emissions saving over uh, a cheaper one that it would spontaneously have selected had there been only a single price in the market. The renewable energy targets came in in 2008, very aggressive indeed, and were designed to suit the uh, then existing European wind and solar industries, now largely uh, devastated by competition from China. Certainly solar. Wind is dying more slowly, but uh, it's certainly dying. So here, here are the two major instruments. Have they been expensive to European consumers? They most certainly have. Uh, the emissions trading scheme has cost uh, EU consumers something like 78 billion US dollars since 2013, and it's adding about $17 billion a year to energy costs in the EU. Subsidies to renewables, that's on a whole different scale. It's dramatically more expensive, and it makes the point about the ETS being potentially actually a better way of decarbonising, if you were committed to it. The commitment to renewables has cost, we know from European Union data published by themselves, which I put into the study. Uh, my study is entirely based on public domain data. Difficult to find, but nevertheless public domain. Subsidies to renewables cost something like 770 billion US dollars in the period 2008-2021. That's a huge burden to have placed on the European economies. And it's not surprising, therefore, to find that there's been a price rashing effect. There's been a strong depressive effect on economic activity in the EU and in particularly in the UK. And you can see this in the energy consumption figures because energy consumption is falling and indeed so is electricity consumption, both of which highly undesirable indications of economic contraction. So you're kind of anticipating my next question. I, I think you've touched on it some, so my, John. So my, you've got all kinds of great data in your report regarding um, impact on, on prices, impact on energy consumption and electricity generation. Are there some additional highlights we should know about? I, I think the things that interest me most about it, or will interest most people at the moment, is to say, what's caused the exposure to natural gas? You know, why is it that the European Union is so vulnerable to uh, the price of natural gas at the moment? 
because there is a naive response at present to say, you know, there's a gas crisis, we clearly need more renewables to diversify fuel supply. But examination of the history and the policy record shows that, in fact, it's the renewables policies themselves that have caused the dependency on natural gas. So we had a broadly mixed fuel system uh, in the 1990s, mixture of coal, natural gas, nuclear, and some hydro, and with the renewables here and there. What's happened is by driving in renewables as the principal means of reducing emissions and forcing coal off the system, and also um, disincentivizing investment in nuclear, because it's driven by Greens, who are very, you know, programmatically opposed to nuclear in spite of its low carbon credentials, what they've done is they've increased the dependency on natural gas, which is now the sole thermodynamically competent fuel on the system. So security of supply, particularly on the electricity networks, hangs by the single thread of natural gas. And that is the result of renewables policies. Mr. Putin didn't have to do that to us. We did it to ourselves and made ourselves therefore particularly vulnerable uh, to fluctuations or indeed interruptions in supply in natural gas. The current crisis is largely the outcome of the energy and climate policies. So, so John, that's great. And, and I, I've got a question. I, I check you might have something too here, but it, it's just kind of interesting to me that there's kind of this people don't understand that by trying to electrify everything, there very well can be more of a need for natural gas. Um, Jack, I don't know what you thought about that, and also yeah. what anything else you wanted to add. Yeah, I thought I thought it was very interesting this um, this notion that green policies have led us to dependence on natural gas. I would argue that um, we also see that in other areas as well, um, that policy to um, push us towards nat natural gas could lead to an over-dependence on that in the United States. I mean, even conservatives are quick to, to point out, we need to produce more natural gas. And yes, we do need to produce more natural gas, but we need to be so careful, so careful to not create policies that bias in one direction or the other. Because what John talked about earlier is so critical, which is it's the mix of energy sources that result from a true mm. market-driven uh, energy policy that diminishes the vulnerability that you have to, um, to, to challenges to any one source. So even though natural gas might see, seem inexpensive and abundant today, we've seen with natural gas or with any commodity that that can change so quickly and that's why it's critical that whether it's through green policies or whatever policy, that government's not biasing energy sources in one way or another, and rather we rely on market forces to help us understand what the best mix of energy sources are over time. Yes, I agree vigorously with that. Security supply is found in our diversity of fuels and that alone. There's no other way of doing it. The coercion in the European Union towards natural gas has caused our exposure. The US fortunately has very generous uh, domestic resources, so perhaps the problem won't be quite so acute for you. And natural gas is an excellent fuel. You know, I'm not certainly not uh, saying we shouldn't use it at all. It's a question of having a diversity of sources, which is very important for Europe. And the market is the best way to determine what that those levels are. So um, policymakers are so quick to look at current, um, current characteristics around a fuel, you know, someone might conclude natural gas is great, therefore we need to do more natural gas. Mm. Um, that may be the case at that particular time, but the private sector is much better able to make those determinations over time. That that was my only... So I would say that's a critical point, Jack. I I remember, well, a while ago, I won't say how long ago, when I was working on um, energy policy on, a, on the state level, I remember there 
there was a concern about kind of like running out, like we were so dependent on natural gas from, I think, Russia at the time. And, oh, my gosh, it's a big concern. And then, of course, we we had certain the fracking developments, et cetera, and things change. Uh, there's this kind of belief that somehow everything is just static, uh, not only as it relates to kind of fuel, but like that somehow humans aren't going to innovate and come up with new ways of accessing other energy sources. And um, we have to also be looking towards the future and not assume that everything is all about this moment right now as it relates to kind of like what the ideal energy source would be. Yeah, we all remember the peak oil arguments that were occurring you know, in the late 90s and early 2000s, which seems so antiquated right now. So, so Jeff, let me get back to you. Um, so I kind of an underlying assumption in this whole discussion is actually that the U.S. hasn't gone as far as the EU when it comes to kind of these global warming policies. First of all, is that even true? I don't think that the United States has gone as far as Europe yet, but we are certainly on that trajectory. I think that when you look at what the Biden administration has laid out, we're headed in that direction for sure. I think that in the United States, there have been efforts to put in place things like cap and trade and other uh, economy-wide carbon capture um, schemes, and those have largely not been successful. And what you've seen is the the left, those who want to who want to restrict carbon production, um, come up with alternative ways through regulation, through um, subsidies, through all sorts of other things. So while we have not gotten to where Europe is, we're certainly on that trajectory. I think one of the one of the interesting things, one of the things that makes the United States, I think, um, the the really the envy of the world when it comes to energy is our federal system where states control um, so much of our energy infrastructure and the federal government is sort of limited um, into what it can do, at least in any sort of efficient way. Of course, over time, we see the drip drip of policy um, coming from Washington, ultimately changing the, 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 the national energy environment, but it makes it more difficult. And, and I think we see that. One other thing that I, w- I will mention that I think is happening in the United States that John described happened in the UK is all of these different um, layers of attempts to regulate carbon that occurred. And it leads to this extraordinarily inefficient and costly Absolutely. Um, uh, system. And while I would not support, in fact, I would fight with every fiber of my <laughs> being against any sort of uh, carbon restrictions at all, um, I agreed wholeheartedly that a straightforward, simple regulation would be the way to do it if one were to do it. And um, though it would be costly and unnecessary, it would be far less costly than this efforts, these efforts that we see unfolding now. And I would argue that um, it may be the case that some don't even care about restricting carbon restrictions. They have some ulterior motive that they see this as a way to increase the reach of the state, increase control of the economy. And um, if you look rationally at their policies, that's the only real explanation. Otherwise, we would be building nuclear power and and we wouldn't be so focused on the very narrow um, industries of wind and solar. I agree with that, again, wholeheartedly. The European experience is very valuable to the US on this particular point. Uh, I've just come back from Denver where I gave five talks about uh, 
the impact in Europe and the likely impact of the Inflation Reduction Act, which is, uh, you know, putting you exactly on that on the European path, only more so. And the magnitude is extraordinary. I, I was interested, and because we have the European example here, I knew exactly where to look and, and start to think about it. So the, the subsidies implied in the IRA are substantial. They're in the hundreds of billions. But the real cost, the opportunity cost to the American people is the capital that is motivated to move into low productivity assets in the energy sector. And that runs into the trillions in a very short period of time, only a decade. So there is a, going to be, a, if, assuming these policies are actually uh, carried through, uh, but as Jack says, the, the federal system may actually put a break on that, let's hope so, and several trillions of dollars, possibly as much as five or six trillion dollars in a decade is a tremendous impact, even on an economy the size of the US. And it will be all the greater because these energy assets are low productivity. So at the same time that you're transferring assets into the se this sector, you're getting poorer. And so, importantly, is that aspect that you just described is so often overlooked. Like people don't recognize the long-term negative impact of ha of distorting capital flows yeah. to these low efficiency assets, and 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 we see the price of that right now in the United States beginning to percolate throughout the system, and you see it in Europe mm. already having manifested itself. Absolutely right. Uh, we've we've our overall electricity system in uh, Europe has increased in magnitude enormously. So the total capacity has increased dramatically because of the subsidies. But the thermal capacity, that's the reliable, dispatchable capacity, has declined, and indeed so has nuclear. And as a result, the productivity of the overall electricity supply industry has fallen very significantly. So I calculated these figures in the study, which has not been done before, to my knowledge, at least not in public. In around about uh, 1990, the EU's generation fleet had a, a capacity factor, a load factor, as we call it in Europe, of about 56%, which is respectable. By 2020, that had fallen to 37%. And that was against a background of falling electricity consumption. So you've got a much lower productivity system serving a falling demand. And naturally enough, that produces higher prices, which in turn produce further reductions in demand. It's a vicious circle. So, so John, we started the, this program talking a little bit about some of the, the history with the EU starting from 1990 to pre-pandemic, but um, I mentioned the European Green Deal. Could you let us know what the European Green Deal is? Well, it's, fundamentally, it's just more of the same. Um, so it extends the emissions trading system into sectors uh, not hitherto covered, uh, including aviation and transport more generally. Um, it doubles down on the renewables target. I mean, the the lesson that we get from this, this is a, a, not surprising, I suppose, to to you in, in heritage. But what we learn from this is again that governments find it very very difficult to learn from their experience, whether that is positive or or negative, as in this case, they cannot learn from their mistakes. They simply cover them up by recommitting to the targets. And falling energy consumption, and particularly falling electricity consumption, is a dreadful economic indicator. And what, what's the European Union's response to this? Their response in the Green Deal is to make further reductions in energy consumption actually part of the target. I mean, they are deliberately trying to starve the European economies of fuel, the fuel which actually allows them to change the world in order to suit human purposes. That is objectively extraordinary, but it is what they are actually doing. So the Green Deal is simply an attempt to cover up the failures of the past or avoid to defer recognition of the failure. 
Uh, and I, I, I think it's, it's going to end in tears, but when? Hard to say. So, Jack, the, the Biden Green Agenda sounds a lot like what EU and UK have been doing. Um, first of all, do you agree? And, and, and can you explain, uh, I believe the Heritage has done some research looking at the impact of some of these Biden energy policies. Can you explain what Heritage found? Yeah. Um, Biden's doing exactly um, the types of things that Europe is doing. We, we, we're seeing in real time the impact of that. Um, but as you said, Heritage has looked at this um, using, in, in fact, um, the Heritage Foundation runs the exact same energy model that our Department of Energy uses to uncover such uh, data. And the we call it the Heritage Energy Model, but it's the National Energy Model. It's run by our colleague Kevin Dairatna. And the analysis you're talking about, he did along with our colleague Katie Tubb. And what they found is that um, if you were to carry out the Biden policies, um, it would have tremendous economic impact, $7.7 trillion in lost GDP over 30 years. I mean, that's just a lot of money for absolutely nothing. Um, and millions of jobs lost. The annual average is 1.2 million jobs lost um, certain years get uh, way more than that. Um, just tremendous economic carnage um, for absolutely no environmental benefit. Even if, even if one agrees with or buys into or however you want to characterize it, the, um, the IPCC's, the, the, um, the, the UN's climate model, it would, doing what Biden wants to do, would have no impact on the climate or minimal um, non-noticeable amounts of, of climate impact. Again, that's assuming one buys into the uh, or, or believes the model that the UN puts out there. So all economic pain and, ver and literally zero environmental gain for that. Um, it makes me think someone must be getting paid. Well, and I'll ask this question both you, Jack, Ann, and John. You know, there's so much focus on emissions, greenhouse gas emissions. But really the issue is, are you going to have an impact on temperature? So you know, uh, there's this kind of confusion of the means, which would be reducing greenhouse gas emissions, and trying to say, oh, look, we're going to reduce emissions by X percent and see it. That's wonderful. But then it, then if you ask the question, well, what, how's that going to impact global temperature? Well, then they just they you know ignore that you even ask that question. So... I don't know if Jack, you have anything to add, or Johnny, have anything to add about that point, but I, I think it's a big problem. It's something I think that we need to always be kind of following up on is, but how is this going to impact temperature? Because that's obviously what you're saying is the big problem. Yeah. I, th I think that's a valid point, one that we should bring up. I do think, though, that we need to be careful how we do it, because it often then flows into a conversation of, well, China and India aren't doing X, Y, and Z. Um, and if, if, if we shouldn't do it because they're not doing it, and if they're not doing it, there won't be any impact on climate. The underlying assumption there is that if India and China were to reduce carbon dioxide, we therefore then should as well. And we just need to be careful how we talk about that. But your point is well taken because I think that most people who advocate these things believe what they are advocating for will lead to some benefit. And I don't know that they know um, that it actually will yield zero benefit. Yeah, this issue cuts to the heart of the problem, really. It's, it's the absence of rigorous cost-benefit 
for any of the climate policies. I, I approach this actually in my study, and I think it's a sound way of approaching it through the abatement cost, that's the cost of preventing the release of a tonne of carbon dioxide, and the social cost of carbon, which is a monetized estimate of the harm done to human welfare, a net present value, uh, of releasing that tonne. And the abatement costs are usually fairly easy to determine. You know, we can look at the subsidies and the policy costs, and we can work out the cost per tonne of preventing the emission of a tonne of carbon dioxide through the policy, say the renewables policies in the EU, technology by technology. The social cost of carbon is more controversial. It's very difficult to estimate indeed, but people have tried. Nordhaus has a very good model. Others have a, their own attempts at it. And the variations are well understood. Uh, some people have you know, think that carbon dioxide is beneficial and therefore they have zero or even negative. And some people think it's 100 or 200. Most people's models turn out a figure of something like $50 a tonne of carbon dioxide. So that's the harm to human welfare. In the European Union, policy costs for abatement are vastly in excess of $50 per tonne. I mean, in the UK, rooftop solar, it's, it's not sunny in the UK, you may have heard. Rooftop <laughs> solar in, it costs over $1,000 a tonne to abate. That is ludicrously in excess. And even offshore wind, which is thought to be relatively cheap, it's 150, 200, onshore winds 100, 200, and so on and so forth. All the policies are way in excess. So the cure is worse than the disease. We're taking chemotherapy for a cold, and that's economically irrational. Well, these figures are well known. Uh, how do governments respond? Well, the UK government's responded by simply not using social cost of carbon. We don't actually have an official estimate of the harm of releasing a tonne of carbon dioxide. Instead, we have what's called target consistent pricing, which is simply the price that has to be made, uh, paid to reach the target. So cost benefit has simply been swept off the table and neglected. And I think that's scandalous. That's just bad government. Yeah. It, it, it is scandalous and bad government, but in some weird way it almost seems more honest it's like we're not we recognize that there's no real calculation here that's gonna um, make sense we just want to reduce carbon dioxide so we're just gonna make you do it yeah well, so um, there's an implicit uh, catastrophist estimate uh, of the cost to human beings which is unjustified so the, right. the social cost of carbon is just unlimited and no justification is offered for that uh, but it does therefore license any policy. So it's it, the cost. The policy becomes, uh, you know, enacted at any cost to present human well-being, and that puts it on a collision course with human wishes. These policies are not politically sustainable, and I think we have to start talking to some parts of the green lobby seriously about this. They're not all um, misanthropic extremists. Some of them are reasonable people and say, look, you've been pushed into a corner on this one. You've got policies that simply will not last. And if you are concerned about reducing emissions sustainably, you've got to find a way of doing it which does not uh, harm human welfare in this politically catastrophic way. The costs of abating carbon dioxide are so high through policies currently uh, running in the European Union, this puts the policies on a collision course with uh, human well-being. And this is politically explosive. At some point, these policies are going to run uh, into intense political opposition. And I think we have to appeal to uh, you know, sensible people on, on the, in the Green Lobby. They're not all misanthropic extremists. There are some sensible people there who have quite rational concerns about climate change. They may be misplaced, but they're rational. 
and, and say to them, look, the policies are not rational. It's perfectly rational to have a climate policy, but these policies are not rational. They're not sustainable. They're going to harm people very badly. You're going to lose them. And if you want to have a sustainable green agenda, you've got to revise your policies and find cheaper ways of reducing emissions. Thanks, John. Jack, uh, I know you've been following what's happening in the EU. Um, can you tell us what's going on in uh, with energy in Germany? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, John has set forth the context of, of what's been going on. I think um, one of the interesting things, one, one of the interesting upshots of that in Germany is that as they reduced their own energy production because of this green agenda, what they did in order to keep the the, the, the German economy going was to um, increase their dependence on Russian natural gas. And, um, of course, that is the case throughout Europe, but I think it is more the case in, in Germany. And one of the interesting things, you always see this when, when governments start manipulating and managing markets. As they do it incrementally, it all seems manageable for some period of time. And it's not until there's a shock that you really see the costs of government trying to manage the economy because it's all of those decisions, those little decisions that would have been made in a free market that diversifies your risk, that makes sure your investments are going to the best and highest uses that aren't made when government starts managing. And it's the, the, um, the lack of those types of things that makes an economy, whether a broad economy or your energy economy, um, able to respond to adversity that Germany is lacking. So whenever Putin invaded Ukraine, um, that then uh, created huge risk, um, disrupted a massive amount of natural gas supply to Germany, and now they're paying the cost. They don't have the energy economy to, to withstand that. And, um, and they're having a hard time responding to it. It's not that if in a free market there's a shock that there's not um, a cost to that. But you see that when government doesn't intervene, the economy responds and rebounds fairly quickly. When government puts restrictions on it and layers different regulations and all these sorts of things, it makes it very difficult to respond. Germany's going through that process right now of being difficult to respond because of all the interventions. And the upshot of that is you have this industrial superpower of Germany whose companies are looking to leave Germany um, you have um, tremendous negativity within the German industry, within German industry. You have um, people not knowing how they're going to heat homes. You have um, the prospect of energy rationing. All of the things that, um, that we have talked about for years that will result from these sorts of policies manifesting themselves in Germany right now. So, so John, what are some of the energy horror stories that we should know about that you've heard about in the EU and UK? I think the things that you should be looking at most carefully as horror stories are really related to overall consumption and industrial energy consumption. I, what we've done with our policies, I said, increased costs hugely. So if you compare electricity, gas and transport fuel prices in the EU with non-EU G20, you find that those prices are very significantly higher over long periods of time while the wholesale prices in the EU and the non-EU G20 are roughly the same. So we know it's policy that's causing the difference. What has that done? It's suppressed demand. And it's suppressed demand in all sectors. Everybody is using less energy. They're not able to change the world to suit their own purposes as freely as they were. 
They're not able to make free choices about it. And that's particularly true in industry. It's been very bad for the UK. Um, Germany has largely escaped, actually, hitherto. Most, much of the damage has been done elsewhere in Europe. And it's been very bad for us in the UK. It's one of the reasons why the Brexit vote took place. It's the recognition that decisions taken in Europe were bad for us and not so bad for others. And our energy consumption has fallen. So our energy consumption, total primary energy, is down about 30% on 2005 levels. Now, that in itself is an extraordinary fact. But it takes us back to energy consumption levels last seen in the 1950s, in spite of a rising population. Our electricity consumption has fallen by about 22% since 2005 and is now back to levels last seen in the early 1980s. And that's largely due to a fall in industrial consumption of both. But it's not solely industrial, it's in all sectors as it happens. What, what have we done? Uh, well, in the UK rather acutely and in Europe more generally, we've exported our uh, production capacity to Asia. So our GDP is buoyed up by the import of um, Asian goods, largely Chinese goods, with borrowed money. That's not a recipe for a sustainable economy. And at some point, the pain will become intolerable and we will wish to reindustrialize, but we may not be able to do so. And so far, as long as we continue to um, have policies that demand the use of high-cost renewable energy, as I say, thermodynamically incompetent, therefore inevitably high-cost renewable energy, we will not be able to reindustrialize. And indeed, at the moment, we look as if we're in some kind of death spiral with ever-falling energy consumption. Now, at this point, I say it's not so bad for you, but you are already on this track. I mean, go and look at the consumption of industrial electricity in the US, and you'll see that it's been declining quite sharply since about the same time, whereas industrial electricity consumption in the People's Republic of China, for example, has risen dramatically over that period and is now, what, five times greater than that in the United States. So there is the horror stories in Europe are, yes, worth your attention, but don't... Don't be complacent about this. It's already happening to you. And you've really got to avoid going as far down this track as we have. John, I want to ask you maybe a, a dumb question, but I want to try to connect a dot here. Um, and that is, some people might be listening to this and saying, oh, energy consumption is going down. That's that's good. Uh, we're using less energy. Why why is it bad? Can you just kind of a plain English, simple? Because, you know, yes, I, I'm, it's, it's intuitively, you, you might think it is, but... In a healthy economy, it always expands. Um, it never contracts. Energy efficiency measures do not and cannot, in principle, reduce consumption in the wider economy. Energy like cash is never left on the table. So even if you, you improve efficiency in one particular conversion process, that will make that process cheaper and people want to use more of it. Now, there might be a limit to the demand, at least a temporary limit to the demand. But now you've got conserved energy, which can be used to satisfy some hitherto unmet human demand. And there is no limit to the changes we will make to the world to suit our own convenience. I and mean, people are never going to say that child mortality is low enough, nor should they. They always want to improve things. There's always room for better healthcare, better roads, better services. So your energy consumption will, in principle, always increase. So when you see falling energy consumption over significant periods of time, as we are in Europe, and indeed you are beginning to see it in the US, there is some other reason than efficiency. Efficiency may be buffering the effect of that uh, you know, undesirable downward pressure, but it's not causing it. The falling energy consumption is an indication of cost or some other coercive measure which is preventing people satisfying their wishes. And likely undermining their quality of life. Absolutely. Their... 
there, there is an implicit reduction in quality of life. I mean, economies are massively distant from thermodynamic equilibrium. They're highly improbable configurations of matter. And if your energy consumption is falling, you're not only unable to create new improbability, new wealth, but you're probably um, not maintaining the wealth that you've inherited and accumulated over hundreds or in Europe thousands of years. So we're seeing a, we're regressing towards thermodynamic equilibrium, becoming less complicated, and that implies, yes, as you say, a reduction in quality of life. So, so John, um, uh, Europe does have significant energy resources, correct? And and if so, can you explain those resources and actually what's going on with nuclear power? Yes, nuclear capacity has been falling in the European Union uh, and because this, the price signals to invest in it have been so disturbed by the enormous coercions in favour of renewables. No one wants to build anything other than renewables. Why, you can get a very good return through investing in the policies, not the technologies. The technologies are obviously hopeless, but the, the policies are a firm bet for an investor. Nuclear power has suffered very badly. Conventional uh, technologies suffered very badly too, even though they're indispensable to guarantee security supply. Nobody wants to invest in, in high-efficiency gas turbines either. They're just, just sweating existing ones to death. Well, this is all very bad news for the consumer and, and needless. Uh, but the, uh, the key observation here is that it doesn't result in a, a, a sustainable uh, system. I mean, there is a crisis coming inevitably here, that there will not be enough firm capacity to support the renewable technologies and the costs to consumers will become intolerable. At some point, it may not be system blackouts, but uh, it, it will simply be costs that mean that it's not that the lights go out, it's that people simply won't be able to afford to turn them on. Jack, did you want to um, add, add something on, on that and also just kind of thoughts on U.S. and energy, kind of the natural resources and the capabilities we have yeah. and what's going on with nuclear. Yeah, well, I'd like – I'd mention something about in the Europe context. I mean it's just absolutely heartbreaking that Europe's going through this because they have – you know, we often think of the United States, maybe the Middle East as having all these energy resources. But Europe also has a lot of energy resources. Put nuclear to the side for the moment um, – Obviously, Europe has a long history in um, using uh, nuclear energy and, and nuclear energy. I would love to have a conversation about that separately. But just sort of conventional hydrocarbons. I mean, Europe has a lot of coal that goes unused. You know, some people think that um, Europe has more shale gas reserves than the United States has. Um, lots of natural gas reserves, all of these things that 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 Europe has at its disposal, but goes untapped so that, you know, as, as John was talking about, this whole issue of energy usage, I, 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 what he said is absolutely true. I agree with everything that he said. So long as you're in a context of abundant energy resources, which the U.S. is, Europe is, the globe is, there's no reason we should be using less energy. Um, and this notion of efficiency that um, there's this narrative that's spun around that efficiency is a is necessarily a has value in addition to that has this outsized value and therefore the government should impose it distorts this whole process that John was talking about where people will by virtue of the uh, of their own decisions seek greater efficiency and that then releases additional re resources that can be applied elsewhere exactly when government gets involved in that and distorts that process 
it screws up the whole thing and it pushes everyone down. It 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 literally will stop human will stop societal development because it's it's access to excess energy that we have seen over time that drives society forward. So I want to get to kind of some of these actions in in light of geopolitical instability. And Jack, let me just ask you, like, kind of like not tapping your own resources and unleashing your own energy. What what's that mean, kind of the for the EU and also the U.S. as it relates to kind of this climate of geopolitical instability, which I guess there always is. Yeah, I mean, it creates huge vulnerability for whoever subjects themselves to that. We, we, we often, when we talk about energy, we often will talk about, we you know, we shouldn't be reliant on uh, Middle Eastern oil or, or this source or that source. I look at it a little bit differently. Um, yes, we should not be reliant on those things. But it's important to recognize that reliance and access are two different things. And um, to me, the most important element of energy policy is to get as many electrons and mon- molecules flowing throughout the world as possible and ensuring that Americans or Europeans have the full spectrum access to all of those things. And that's how you minimize your vulnerability to any one source. Now, the one exception to that are national security exceptions. Uh, like, for example, I, I, I think it makes all the sense in the world to not um, purchase Russian uh, energy resources. Um, there might be a case for with China or who knows what, you know, that putting that aside, we should maximize access to all of it. And that's how you minimize any vulnerability to any of it. John, what's your take on some on, the, on that issue? Yes, I mean, you asked me about um, European energy resources. I mean, there are considerable uh, reserves of coal uh, and natural gas remaining. Uh, at current prices, many of those reserves are now uh, economic, and, and but those prices may not persist forever, of course. Nevertheless, um, worthwhile to return. Government has been suppressing investment in the conventional energy sector, both implicitly through the renewables policy and also explicitly in being hesitant to grant new licenses. I mean, you see something similar in the United States. I, during my visit to Denver, I realized that uh, the federal government has considerable stranglehold over the granting of consents, and there's something very similar in Europe too. So we've been slow to uh, realize that our policies have been strangling uh, the production of fossil fuels, which has meant that we are rather exposed, considerably exposed, to natural gas blackmail from Russia, or at least uh, the European states are, and the UK is indirectly. But it's important to realise that even though there is considerable promise uh, in the fossil resources in within Europe, and shale may be extremely interesting. I mean, it's absolutely right. I, mean, I spent a lot of time looking at shale when I was in Denver, and it's, it is fascinating. Um, and the potential in the UK and Europe more broadly is, is remarkable and deserves exploration, and I think it will be explored. But it's unlikely that even if we do quite a lot of that, that we're going to become energy autarkic and self-sufficient. We're going to need to trade. And there's nothing wrong with that. Trading is excellent. It's a very good thing to do. But you need to be trading from a strong position. And so having domestic uh, resources that you can choose to use puts you in a much stronger negotiating position internationally, both politically and indeed economically. Um, So there's every reason to... uh, increase production, even though it doesn't actually satisfy all of the uh, European demand. The situation in the US is slightly different. Uh, you know, it, it would seem that 
um, there is a God and he's been listening to those songs you sing and he really has blessed America, um, you do have remarkable uh, resources and uh, clearly you're going to need to use them. So we've been talking a lot about lessons for the U.S., but there's obviously lessons for the EU and U.K. here about their own kind of their own actions. So, John, do you see EU or the U.K. taking kind of a different direction moving forward in any way? Alas, no. Uh, <laughs> the, the, the inability of the bureaucratic administrations to learn from their mistakes is extraordinary. And... Uh, the physics here is all you need to understand. I mean, how stupid do you have to be to think that you're going to be able to make cheap energy out of something chaotic like wind or pretty random and weak like solar? I mean, there are no living organisms that derive their fundamental metabolic energy from wind. It's, it's rubbish. It's too low quality. You just you can't do it. Sun, yes, there are creatures that derive their fundamental metabolic energy from sun, but they're simple and stationary. They're plants. Now, this is low-quality stuff, but our, uh, our decision-making processes in the Western democracies have failed to spot this, and that is objectively very remarkable. It's a major intelligence failing, and, but we haven't learned the lesson. There is no sign that uh, they are yet willing to, to actually reverse direction. So our own government in the UK is still sticking to the line that offshore wind is getting cheaper. Although you only have to look at the audited financial statements of the wind farm companies to realise that their capital costs remain stubbornly high and their operational costs are actually rising. Similar stories for solar. That's not at all surprising from the physics. You know, these, I say again, these are thermodynamically incompetent sources. The extraction, conversion and delivery is going to be inevitably resource intensive. There's got to be a negative entropy flow somewhere. And uh, it's very, very expensive. But our, our civil service simply cannot learn this lesson. And I do not see anything other than a major public pushback uh, that will actually turn these policies around. So I want to go a little bit off on a tangent a bit on a big picture question. And Jack, I'm going to ask you this question. And, and John, I'll follow up with you on it too. What is the impact of these global warming policies on, on the poor and also on developing countries? And, and it's just something that obviously bothers me. And what's your take on trying to influence how developing countries generate their energy? That's a great question. I think that um, there's a real moral question about that, that um, developing countries to impose on them these energy restrictions, I think, is immoral. It's also bad for the environment. Um, what we see, the Heritage Foundation Index of Economic Freedom and other measures show that free and prosperous economies are the greenest economies, that um, a people with resources um, to feed and house themselves have additional resources to protect the environment around them and to um, subject uh, developing countries to um, this whole green uh, policy is, is immoral, I would argue. From a, um, from a poor people perspective, it's also immoral. What these politicians don't seem to recognize or they won't acknowledge is that poor folks spend a much greater portion of their limited income on food and energy and the precise policies that these elite politicians um, are, are, are advancing increases those costs. There's just no question about it. Um, it decreases their economic opportunity. It, um, it leads to nothing good um, except for the, uh, the, the elite who are getting paid through these policies. So 
Um, I think it's tremendously um, detrimental. Then there's one final piece of it that I would just mention quickly. Every ounce of brain power and money that we spend going after alleged global warming problems is brain power and money that we're not spending to fix actual environmental issues like clean air and clean water. And it's, it's uh, America's poorest folks, and it's the same around the world, who have the least access to clean air and clean water. And that, um, that this entire environmental movement who claims to um, want to do what's best for the, the, the most vulnerable, um, that, that, that they are advancing policies that ignore this fact, um, I think is, 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 again, nothing short of immoral. And, uh, I mean, for the developing countries, I mean, issues regarding clean water are really like the practical problem that they're, they're facing. They're dying because yeah. they—go ahead. Yes, it is that. It's also here in the United States. It's not Calabasas, California, whose you know, who's water running out of their pipes are filled with lead. It is inner city communities that, are, that, that continue to have those problems. Um, it's Flint, Michigan that has those problems. I think it was Flint. Yeah. But, but at, at any rate, yes, it is, it is true that uh, entire communities of people around the world, countries of people don't have access to those things. But it's not just them. John, I wanted to get your take on like the impact of these global warming policies on the poor and also on the developing countries. Well, we can be very specific about it in within the European Union itself. We know that they've spent 770 billion euros, nearly 800 billion US dollars on subsidizing renewables in the period 2008-21. Now that subsidy is viciously regressive. It's regressive because as Jack says the impact on energy uh, the energy consumption of the poor is very severe. Energy bills are a larger part of their total expenditure, so it's highly regressive policy. But it's viciously regressive because this is a wealth transfer to richer people who are able to invest in the renewable technologies that are receiving the subsidy. So this is a, a reverse Robin Hood policy, robbing the poor to feed the rich. So this is creating uh, a severe uh, wealth imbalance within the European Union. And that is extraordinarily deeply ironic. Remember, this is Europe that sneers at the United States um, for its lack of a compassionate social policy. Well, very remarkable and very instructive. Um, globally, yes, I completely agree. It's, uh, it's close to evil to be forcing inferior energy technologies on people who are already poor. And you begin to suspect the motives of countries doing so. And indeed, internationally, I think that is the view, that this is kicking the ladder away uh, after you've climbed it yourself. This is not intended actually to be helpful, but is intended to suppress growth uh, in competitor nations. I don't know whether it's that. Sometimes I think it's just incompetent uh, attempts at charity. But renewables are certainly not a gift that the poor should wish to accept, nor do they want to. So as we wrap up, um, Jack, I'll turn to you. What are a few key takeaways and maybe some lessons for the U.S. that you think listeners should take with them? I think first and foremost, when we think about energy policy, we need to trust ourselves, American families, and businesses to make the best decisions for America in general. We too often are willing to cede that responsibility and those decisions to policymakers and bureaucrats. And we see over time that they don't have the knowledge to make the decisions that benefit us. We've seen it. You almost look at any energy policy. Um, in the 70s, it was price caps. 
whether it's the environmental uh, uh, regulatory regimes like NEPA, the National uh, Environmental Protection Act, or, or all sorts of things. These impositions, efficiency mandates is a huge one. These energy and environmental policies that are purported to save us energy, save us money, clean the environment, never do any of those things. What does work is when American citizens go out and make decisions that are best for them and their families. Um, and and it is, it, we do make decisions about energy and energy usage. And we should demand from our politicians that we are empowered to make those decisions. We don't need them to make them for us because they always screw it up. Thanks, Jack. Uh, John, what are some key takeaways from you? Very similar sort of conclusions. The attempt to administer uh, the European energy system in order to reduce emissions has resulted in a catastrophic type failure. The wrong energy systems have been selected. And they might have chosen the right ones. Uh, you know, it's possible that they would have regarded fundamental physics as relevant and therefore selected a gas to nuclear transition. As it happens, they didn't. Under political pressure, they selected thermodynamically incapable resources and have consequently caused an economic and indeed now a geopolitical catastrophe for our people. Um, free markets will spontaneously gravitate towards superior energy sources because they're aware of the cost signals coming through in price. So that, but that spontaneous gravitation has been interrupted and we need to get back to it. It's going to be very difficult. Insofar as emissions reduction can be combined with liberal markets, you need some kind of side constraint. Um, if you're going to do this, a single market price, this is the lesson from Europe. If we were going to do this, we should have had the emissions trading scheme and just stuck with it and allowed the market to find um, the cheapest way to reduce emissions. But I think we're now beyond that. Uh, I think we've lost the carbon reduction agenda. We're now just worried about surviving. John, can I ask, um, is there kind of a, is the public kind of waking up to some of these problems that are happening there? I mean, I think the public is, I think, waking up here in the U.S. because we're getting hammered with high prices. I'm just wondering what's going on over in EU and U.K.? I'd like to think so. Um, I think there's, there's so much counter-propaganda blaming the Ukraine war for this. The Ukraine war has made it worse, but it doesn't, didn't cause the fundamental problems. I think we're a way off from widespread public recognition. But yes, some people are beginning to see that, in fact, the Green Agenda has been is the culprit here and is a disaster. In fact, you know, even before the this Green Agenda, at least here in the U.S., a lot of us, the conservatives, would have argued exactly what what is happening now and that's what you know this is actually kind of what you would have expected and high prices etc and that's what we're seeing absolutely i mean i resist saying i told you so but i have been saying this since about 2004-5 it's it's no uh, no satisfaction to me whatsoever john and jack uh thank you so much for joining us today once again, I'm Darren Baxt, Senior Research Fellow, Environmental Policy and Regulation at the Heritage Foundation. And I want to thank all of you who are listening to the program and hope you've enjoyed this edition of the Center for Energy, Climate, and Environment's PowerCast. Please tell your family, friends, and colleagues about the PowerCast and be on the lookout for the next edition coming out in two weeks. Thank you again.